Welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by the Amoria Bond Group. In each episode, we feature prominent business leaders and industry experts sharing their personal experiences and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them and insights into their specialist fields, as well as tools, techniques, and practical steps we can all take to progress lives everywhere. I'm Natasha Crump, ESG Director for the Amoria Bond Group. Joining me today is Gary Eldon, OBE for Services to Diversity in Business. Gary is the former CEO of S3 PLC, a FTSE listed specialist recruitment company. Gary worked his way up at S3 from trainee recruiter, experiencing a variety of roles in his journey to CEO, including founding S3 brand Huxley and Group Chief Strategy Officer. Gary is now chairperson of RecBid, a disruptive tech startup. And here at Amoria Bond, an international recruitment specialist and staffing consultancy in advanced engineering and technology. Beyond the boardroom, in 2015, Gary was awarded Business Person of the Year at the Black British Business Awards, an award going to inspirational role models who can encourage the next generation of business achievers. He's also a trustee for the Alito Foundation, a nonprofit supporting people from disadvantaged backgrounds to help them fulfil their potential as the future leaders of tomorrow. And in 2020, Gary founded the Diversity and Inclusion Charter, an independent initiative aimed at encouraging companies and individuals to hold themselves accountable by publicly pledging what actions they'll take to make positive real world change and make diverse, inclusive and equal workplaces a reality. So Gary, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Natasha. That was a mouthful. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Got through it. Gary, It's your passion in diversity and inclusion that we're really going to focus on today. But I'd like to start by first understanding a bit more about your own personal progression. So what does progression mean to you? Wow, that's a tough first question. I suppose progression for me is trying to improve yourself mentally, physically, um, as you get older, and, and, and make sure that you're, I think you push yourself beyond your safety, you know, your safety net and and try and achieve more out of life. I think we have a very short period of time on this earth and we need to try and make the most of it. You know, I don't believe in an afterlife. So progressing to me is making sure that everything I do, I feel like I'm challenging myself. You know, since leaving recruitment, I'm involved in a lot of tech startup type companies and I'm learning new new skills and, um, you know, learning to to adapt to different situations. And even at the ripe old age of, of, of 53, to me, it's about, right, for the next seven years, what can I do that's going to make me feel challenged and, and progress and evolve? And to me, that's what progression is, right? You, it's, it's, not, it's just evolving and developing and growing as, as a person. So that concept of continuous improvement, continuously kind of like working towards something else, is that a model that you've applied throughout your career? Because kind of looking back, trainee to CEO was quite the journey. Was it always part of a master plan? I've always been ambitious, always. I was never satisfied, you know, I was you know, being brought up in a council estate. I always thought, right, why can't I have a house? You know, and then if you get a nice car, why can't I have a better car? If you're earning X, why can't I earn X plus Y? So I, I don't know why. I think it was always in me that I, I wanted to have more. Initially, it was for materialistic reasons. 
but even even I suppose in a competitive environment like sports at school, you know, we're always pushing to win and do better. I, I don't know. I think from a very young age, I think it was always in me. I don't know, is it nature or nurture? I just felt that, you know, that there, there's, why don't you push yourself and see what you can achieve? That's always been, a, I've always been driven in that way. So you talk about ambition and, and a clear drive and determination to succeed. Did you also kind of plan your next steps? Have you always kind of got within the next two, three, five, ten years? Have you always kind of got that modelled out to a certain extent in front of you? No, I think my, my my view was if you're the best at what you're doing, then the opportunities will come. That's what I've always loved about sales, right? And, and before I got into sales, I, well, two jobs before, I was in insurance broking. And that philosophy of if you're, if you're the best at what you do, you will succeed. I didn't think applied there. It was it's who you knew um, rather than what you did. And so I, I worked out after four years, maybe I'm a bit slow in working that out. I worked out after four years, it wasn't a meritocratic environment. So I always felt if I got into sales, I'm successful at sales, then the opportunities would come. And that, that's how I looked at it, right? Be the best and then, then things will happen. And, and, and luckily, I've been in an environment where I was able to do that. You've got to be in the right environment to achieve that but always push to be the best. And if you are the best, then I do think things will happen. That's interesting. You talk about environment and we'll come back to that a little bit later. But in terms of being the best for anyone kind of at the start of their career or kind of hungry for the next the next kind of move and with that same ambition that you talked about you having, what does being the best look like? What were the attributes that made you the best? Yeah, look, I always, I've said this many a time, right? Um, Academically, I wasn't I wasn't the brightest. I wasn't the most natural salesperson, to be honest. You know, I came into an environment where I left a state agency where I was one of the youngest managers. After two, you know, after two years in a state agency, I was managing more than one office. Then I got into recruitment and I was like, whoa, this is a different league of salespeople. And they were academically brighter than me. I think they were better at sales than me. And the only thing I could do to close the gap and I've said this so many times, was to work harder than harder than them. And then once you start working harder and you get what you're doing, then you can just be as smart as them. So what I did is I used to go around and speak to the most successful people in the business and say, how do you do that? And what would you do in that situation? And then you pick up that knowledge and you say, okay, I'll put that bit there and that bit there and use a bit of my own, my own magic, put it together, and then you have your own formula. And I think that's, that's to me is how you become better. I didn't sit there and, you know, and hang out with the wrong type of people. And there's a term we used to use back in the day, it's called mood, mood hoovers. You know, they always complain, oh, life's not fair. Oh, it's because of my colour or it's because of this or it's because of that. And look, in some cases that may be the case, but you can either sit back and, and, and gripe and, gr- and growl about it or you can try and do something about it. I never hung around with the mood hoovers, right? I'd hang around with the inspirational people and learn from them and, and gain as much knowledge as I can from them and then hopefully evolve and do and do better. So it to me, it's about working harder, but then people do miss this bit, but it's also working smarter as well. That's really interesting. So that hard work ethic, but also you mentioned something there that's that's quite important and I think it's quite telling in terms of some of the things that you've spent your time investing in 
later in your career. And that's about proactively surrounding yourself by the best, by people who, for whatever reason, in whatever area of work you're doing, inspired you. So kind of almost self-selecting role models and mentors through your career. Is that is that a fair kind of summary? Yeah, look, if I look at the people that help help me make become successful, there are from different walks of life. I had an odd bunch of people at, at Huxley when I started Huxley. People would look at my team and go, well, they're odd. I like people from different backgrounds, right? I'd have people from middle-class backgrounds, working-class backgrounds, Jewish, Indian. It didn't bother me, right? Manchester, it's its own thing, right? So I can think of the people that I had around me, but they all had something to add, right? And I was never that sort of person who had that hierarchy where they couldn't speak their mind, right? I'd have a business that did banking in a certain way. I'd have a business that did engineering in a certain way. I had a business that did IT in a certain way. We'd have a perm business. We'd have a contract business. But the one thing we all had is that we had the common goal of being trying to be the best, the most successful brand within S3. In order to be successful, you surround yourself with people that you think are going to be better at you in certain things. And I think I was good at just pulling that all together. Um, I'm very good at delegating. So good skill to have. I think lots of us would like to be better at delegating than we are. Just coming back to that point, you talk about surround yourself by lots of different types of people. You talk to a lot about kind of that hunger and that passion for learning from different people. You've had great success through your career. How important do you think actually having that diversity around you that you're naturally drawn to how much of a factor do you think that that has actually been in the the success of the businesses you've worked in I don't think it it was diverse enough if I think back you know it's if you look at the percentage of males in senior roles and whites I suppose white males but I think diverse to me is not just the color of your skin it's making sure it's obviously gender but it's also your social backgrounds as well So some people might come from a middle class background and went to private school, but but have the same drive as someone who came from a working class background and lived on a council estate. And so to me, it's the person that I try and I try and think it's I try and think we've got a meritocratic environment. The right person will get the will get the job. And I believed in that for so long, for so long. But then when we looked at the data and the stats and looked at the management team that I had, then it didn't add up. So something was missing, right? It wasn't as diverse as I'd liked it to have been. And to this day, you still look back and go, why was that? Why was that? And sometimes the environment you create is sometimes what you're, as a team, are comfortable in. So if you're into into sports and you're sitting around a table and you're talking about football or rugby or cricket or whatever, and someone's not into sports, and that's all you're talking about. Or you're talking about going down the pub and having drinks, and but someone's not doesn't drink. But you're, you're actually creating an environment where we have certain types of people. So although you strive to be a diverse environment, unconsciously you're actually talking about issues and things that is isolating certain people who don't. Who then when you do a, when you get feedback from them, go, do you feel you're part of it? They go, they say no. It's like a there's an in crowd that I'm not in. And therefore, you find people move and go into, you know, leave because they don't feel they're part of that sort of group. So although I'd I'd like to say, yeah, it was really diverse. I had this, I had that. If I look back, yes, it was diverse to some degree, but I could have done a lot more if I think about it. And and it's not until we did surveys and questionnaires and and everything else, then you realise, ah, 
we do have a problem. And I think you need to address that, right? Um, but sometimes in your own head, you think everything's fine, right? I'm not, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not this. Um, um, you know, big, I'm, one I used to hear guys saying, well, I, how can I be sexist, right? I've got, a, I've got a wife and a mother. I, won't, I wouldn't discriminate against someone coming in. But the environment you create means women don't want to come in. I think as you come older and wiser, look at the data. And if the data in your, or the stats in your company doesn't look as equal as you think it should be, then you maybe need to look at it. You look at there's a problem, there's a root cause to the problem. Nice, honest um, response there, Gary. You talked there about the importance of surveys and stats in terms of actually kind of taking the blinkers off and helping to kind of help you to understand that more needs to be done. Maybe you weren't as diverse as an organisation as, as you'd maybe thought you were. There are still quite a lot of naysayers around, oh, you know, stats, it's, you don't need stats, you don't need surveys, you know. It's all about creating, you know, a, an open, welcoming environment. Why is it, do you think, that actually... Yes, you need to create the environment, but why are those why are those numbers so important in kind of advancing and turning the dial? I just think a lot of companies are in denial, and because they generally have, well, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, I don't discriminate. Therefore, when I take person on, I take it on merit, and I think deep, deep down, they do believe that, right? And they're not just consciously going out there going, oh. I'm taking you on because you're white and you're a male. You know, they're not sitting there doing that. But the problem is, is that sometimes the way you ask questions, the environment that they're in, the interview process, I look back now and how we, what we used to do, you go, geez, a certain type of person wouldn't want to come to this company. It's a very laddish cult culture. And sometimes the women have to act like men to succeed and, and they can't be themselves. I think we're just not aware of it. Okay. And, and I think we need to educate ourselves and then we need to develop ourselves and we need external people to make us aware of it it was not until you get people who you consider professionals in this area that come into your business and say let's look at your culture what do you think about your culture our culture is great it's a meritocratic environment look i'm i'm from an ethnic minority background i've succeeded but i'm an exception to the rule right and therefore you can't base everything on one black person or one woman or one gay person right you you've got to base it on on the data right if you don't think you're doing anything wrong then you're not you're, you've got reluctance to change and until you accept that there's an issue until you start looking at yourself and start thinking of your and people call it unconscious bias right but as we become more and more educated right i think it's becoming conscious bias but until you start addressing yourself and saying hold on but I don't think so. I think sometimes you need an external guidance and advice to, to, to get that moment where you go, ah, OK, I've heard it enough now. And if I've heard it from enough people, then something must be wrong. It's interesting you talk about kind of denial and whether it's conscious or unconscious bias. I think there's certainly, from my perspective, still real lack of awareness amongst many of us particularly those of us who've never experienced racism personally, that racism is still an issue. I often hear now, you know, racism is an American issue. It's not, you know, it's no place, there's no place for racism in modern Britain. All sorts, you know, those kind of things that, you know, it's not, it's not a problem anymore here. It's not a British problem. It's a thing of the past. I know from speaking to you and from hearing you speaking to other people that you've had your own experience of racism and bias. Um, and I'd just be interested to understand from you, for those people who don't think that 
this is an issue anymore. It's not something that we need to be talking about. The conversation should move on. What are the ways, Gary, that you've experienced racism and and how does racism and discrimination still show up today for, for black people in the workplace? Yeah, this is a, that's a deep that's a deep question. So my, my wife, who's white and from Croydon, had the similar sort of attitude. Like, what are you on about racism? I've not, you know, I've not seen it, you know. And it wasn't until we started to go to clubs, we try and turn up at the door, and she'd be on her phone, and then I'll go in, try and go in first, and it'd be like, sorry, sir, it's members only. I'm like, what do you mean it's members? I'm in a suit and everything. And then she'll she'll rock up and go um, and just walk straight in, right? So. We did an experiment once, and it's crazy. I've got a friend who's very dark. He's black and very dark. And so he'd walk up to the door right, and say, right, um, yeah, I'm coming for a drink. They say, sorry, sir, members only. And he's in a suit, right? Then I turn up, and um, they'd ask me questions. Say, look, are you here? We're blah, blah, blah. But they'd eventually let me in. And then a white friend of us would turn up, and he'll just go straight in. So people might go, oh, that you know, this happens all the time. And unfortunately, when you live in a sort of certain bubble, right, and in a certain environment, you don't experience it. I used to get stopped all the time when I lived um, in Blackheath. I used to run a, a Caribbean takeaway every time I uh, dropped the chef home. Every every single night, more or less, I used to get stopped all the time. And it's like, geez, this is getting this is crazy. So when you tell people that now, since I I've moved to I've lived in Chelsea, I've moved out to outside of Guildford. I've never been stopped ever, right? So you don't experience it until maybe you live in a certain environment or a certain area, right? I've never experienced any form of racism that I've seen at the schools that my kids go to, which is predominantly white schools, right? One of my daughters is about similar complexion to me. One little kid told her about, oh, my mummy says that black people aren't good at ballet. And and she came back like, what does she mean by black people are not good at ballet? And why was she talking to me? Because she didn't see colour. And then we had to explain to her you know what it was all about and for the first time at the age of nine she under she started to be aware of her color being slightly darker than everyone else and so there are little things that happen that most people are unaware of but when you are different or you're in a situation it it it, it does really sort of hit you right my youngest daughter who's darker than my eldest daughter who blonde hair and and white is more aware of it already at nine than my eldest daughter. Why is that? So I've not in- installed that on her. You know, we don't talk about race because we didn't feel we needed to. But you can see already that she's growing up more aware. She knows she wants to know about George Floyd, what what happened there and what's racism mean, Dad. And, and she's more aware of it and asks questions about it more than my other daughter. So I just think that there is little things that you, you come across and you notice that as a white person, sometimes you miss and or as a female, right, you capture that you, you sense things that men don't. My wife told me all the time, like, what you've just said there is inappropriate. I'm like, really? And, and then she challenges me and I go, ah, I see it. So unless you start listening to someone who's different from you. And if, so if you are in that privileged environment, you need to know what other people are thinking and saying. And this is why, you know, when I work with the Alito Foundation, we do the mentoring type thing. If you are that sort of white privileged person, it's not until you start listening to kids who are well-educated. They went to Oxford, right? These are not kids that are coming in, oh, it, life's not, they are, these are people that have gone through the whole education system. They're the best of the best. And when these people from these white privileged backgrounds start talking to these young kids 
and they listen to what they have to go through. And remember, I get away with a lot more because I'm of a lighter colour. So I'm conscious of the fact these young kids, young black kids, who tell these mentors what they have to go through, and they're in shock. They're like, what, in England? That doesn't happen in England. What are you talking about? And they're saying, this happens all the time. But you just you just become, you get a thick skin about it. Or what people used to say is, oh, Gary's got a chip on his shoulder. Now, I haven't got a chip of my shoulder. It's that I won't tolerate certain things, right? So to me, you've got to understand that until you're in those shoes, sometimes it's difficult to relate to it. Access to role models is actually incredibly important, isn't it, in terms of educating ourselves, educating others. As a woman, it can sometimes be quite difficult to identify, you know, like aspirational women to, to kind of role model. I'm lucky I've had them in the past. And it's, but it's not always that easy to kind of identify like amazing, inspiring role models. How important have role models in your life been? And if you had to kind of pick out one standout role model who's inspired you through your life or your career, who would that be? Role models are, are, are so important. And I, I've said this again before, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question, but it's even simple things. As a girl, for example, you're brought up in this Disney world, right? And in Disney world, the role models, as a, you're a princess and you need to be saved by a prince all the time. And so the role models as a woman is like, okay, this prince is always going to save us. And so it wasn't until Frozen comes along, right? And you've got these strong role models. And I didn't name, my daughter's called Elsa. Was, she was named before Frozen, right? But it's not until you start seeing these positive female role models that you can hopefully these girls will stop thinking about, you know, I need to wear pink and be saved by a prince. Black person and everything you see, the role models that you see or everything you study at school is all white European. And that the only thing you talk about when it comes to black people, slavery, then you start thinking, well, what did we ever do? You hear stories, this is terrible, right? Where kids are trying to straighten their hair to look like their white friends, black people, kids, or lightening their skin. We all need to feel we're part of something. So when I was, because my dad's from, my dad's from Jamaica and he was very much into sports. So when I was young, it was all about, he was my role model because I had a dad that was working hard and he was, you know, you always, you know, you boys look up to their dads, right? And my dad was, effectively a role model my first role model but my dad's role models were sporting heroes so it would be in cricket it would be Viv Richards in boxing it was Muhammad Ali in civil rights movement he would talk about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King my dad was always pushing about he doesn't I think he wasn't conscious about doing it he's just these were the people that he looked up to so as a young kid I'd look up to the same people my first role models were definitely in the sporting world, I'd say. Definitely related to, to cricket, which I loved, or boxing. My whole environment was about seeing positive role models. If you look at why the Alito Foundation started, it started as the Power List. And what the Power List was, it was a publication that identified successful black people outside of music, sports, it was looking at black people in the business world that you could look up to and go, oh, there's a black CEO. There is a black lawyer. And I don't think in, in UK we don't push these role models enough for young kids to say one day you can be. We need to really bring to life female role models, black role models, right? It, it can't just be white 
role models that are in whole of society, right? Now, I, I, of course, we've got to study English, British history. We're in, we're in the UK. I get it. But there's other things that we can also bring to people's attention. And I think sometimes you just feel isolated and you don't feel part of it. And therefore, I, I think it excludes a lot of people. I think we need to reflect society a lot more than it actually is. And so I think the schooling system has a lot to answer for. We need more role models. And the role models can't just be um, the same ones that we keep rolling out, right? There's a lot more that we can be sharing. The amount of people that used to come up to me at S3, right? We had our Christmas do. And the amount of young black people used to come up to me and go, Gary, I'm so proud of you. I was like, whoa, it's just made me feel really uncomfortable. I remember, you know, there's 20, 30, 40 young black people and, and all of them said the same, you know, will say more or less the same thing. You've got to give back and try and help other people to say it can be achieved. I think it's important. So really interesting perspective. And actually, since we've started talking today, there's been a few times where you've come back to this idea of learning from mistakes, of allowing mistakes, um, being accepting that failure happens along the journey. Do you think that, that that's a critical component, that kind of accepting that mistakes happen, accepting that sometimes you're going to fail, but actually, how do you react to those failures? How do you learn from those mistakes? That's one of the really critical ways to progress. Just thinking about people listening and kind of helping others to progress their lives. How important is that, do you think? I've failed so many times at things, right? I've opened offices that have lost money. I've made the wrong strategic moves. I've, I've, made a, I've had a lot of failures in, in what I've done. I've started businesses that have not gone anywhere. To me, it's, what, it's, it's if you learn from those failures, like you said, right? And I remember when I was chief strategy officer, I, I opened offices in Brazil, India, Russia. And when I became CEO, I closed Brazil, Russia, and India because I made a mistake. The market had changed, but also there were better markets and better locations to focus on. I had to take it on the chin and made a mistake. I think life is about making mistakes, but if you don't learn from them, then it's, it's, it's all a waste, right? You're going to keep making them. If you're going to push yourself and if you're going to stretch yourself and you're going to challenge yourself, you will make mistakes. It's not possible. But if you want to take it easy and be safe all the way, then you'll make less mistakes. And failure is part of everything, right? And it's how you deal with failure, I believe. It makes you resilient, makes you better. I think failing is part of your development. And if you don't go through life failing at anything, then you're living in a bubble. And I think we need to make mistakes in order to be better at what we do. It's an important point as well, really, isn't it, in the whole conversation around how do we progress and advance diversity and inclusion in the workplace, I think, because... Whilst a lot of organisations, a lot of individuals are actually really keen on doing more to become more diverse, to create more inclusive and equal kind of working environments, there is still quite a big fear factor that I'm going to say the wrong thing, I might mess this up, I'm going to do the wrong thing. How do we remove that kind of fear to open up the conversations, take that fear factor away that you've talked about a fair bit there, so that it makes it easier for organisations to actually just get started and start trying. You need to educate people because they can't keep using that as an excuse, like, oh, that person, I didn't know. After a while, it just wears thin, right? I, I didn't know I sh shouldn't use that word or say that thing, or I, don't, I didn't mean it. I think we've got to have a safe environment where, okay, let's have a, an environment where people can have an opinion 
And I think you need to get people from different backgrounds in a room and say, look, I find that offensive and, and then explain why. And I think unless you have an open dialogue with people from different backgrounds, then I don't think you're going to understand their point of view on things. So if you have an environment where you just sweep it under the carpet and say, look, just be careful what you say, then it just goes underground, right? Racism just goes underground. They just don't speak about it anymore. And if you don't speak about it, I don't think you get people to change. And I think we just need to have an environment where people can can talk, speak about things, might say the wrong things. And as long as you they're, they're saying it with the right intentions, say, look, this is how I feel. This is how I think. I don't think it's a sexist or racist environment. I don't think it's a homophobic. But And you say, well, hold on, let me just tell you why and explain why. And then they might say, OK. And if they're aware of what people are seeing from a different perspective, I think then you'll start get to that, get changed. If you if you don't have an open environment where people can talk, then it will just go underground, right? People will say less and it will build up and it become worse, I think. And I think we need to start thinking about how do we create that environment where people can speak their minds. Then we can go the other way where you go, you're so conscious of getting everyone's opinion on everything, you never get anything done. You've segued really nicely there into what I wanted to speak to you about next. You talk about let's not talk so much that we don't act. And I don't know if you remember, but the first time you and I spoke was not long after the murder of George Floyd. And it was a time when there was a lot of talk in the media and businesses around the world were releasing statements in support of Black Lives Matter. There was a a real kind of sense of change and challenge. But you said something to me when we first spoke that stuck in my head and it stuck with me actually. You talked to me about the inadequacy and meaningless of outrage unless it's backed up with action. You obviously believe, Gary, that businesses have an ethical responsibility to move the needle, to help accelerate and overcome the institutionalised inequality and discrimination that still exists. So tell me about the Diversity and Inclusion Charter then. Why is it so important, do you think, for individuals, for organisations to make that public pledge to hold themselves accountable to what action they're going to take, not just saying we believe in diversity and inclusion, you know, it's a great idea, to actually hold themselves accountable. This year, I am going to do, we are going to do X, Y, Z. There's a guy called Carl George who runs something called the Race Code. He's looked at all the data from all these different programmes around diversity and inclusion. And we've looked at how we've evolved in the last 20 or 30 years in in this particular area. The data will show there's very little change, right, in relation to black people at senior level. There's been the Parker report that was done, I don't know, five years ago about we need more people at this level, black people at board level. Very little has changed, if anything, right? And it's all box ticking at the moment. So something like the race card or diverse inclusion charter is talking about, let's stop talking about it. Let's put practical solutions to it. So the race call will go to companies and say, if you're struggling to change and adapt, then we'll give you, we'll help you do that, right? We'll give you some guidelines and some training and some development. The diversity and inclusion, and I approach so many companies who go, this is a great idea to have a diversity inclusion charter that publicly says, this is what I'm going to do. And then you back, you have to back it up. 90% of the people I said, it's a great idea. Take ups about 1%. Because people like the idea of changing, but 
they don't want to put it down and give and show what they're going to do different because you know what it's hard work right it's hard work i need to make money so i'm just going to carry on doing what i'm doing i'll i'll throw a few nuggets out there and i might you know get that i'll get a person of different color or you know different gender and i i feel good about myself but i don't really want to do it because it's difficult it's not easy to sit down and say to your team right we need to look at a diverse form of candidates we need to go into a different pool of people to look at and we need to start thinking about how we interview people from that pool because they're going to respond differently to interviews than someone from from that pool and people just go Do you know what i've got to fill these jobs i need to take someone on and i haven't got the time and it is because they got to hit their numbers so i get it right so i've got to hit my budget i've got to take 10 people on and if I just go into the same pool of graduates from certain backgrounds who look who look a certain way, I know that if they come in, I can train them easily because we can talk about the same things. We're you know we have the same similar backgrounds. They look like me, sound like me, went to similar things to me. So when we go out, we can socialize together, and it becomes an it becomes an extension. If you then start bringing someone from a certain background who might be a Muslim and doesn't drink. They might think, God, we can't go out for a drink anymore, right? Or it might be a female who might not be into the sort of masculine thing or the male things, or it might be someone who's gay and you're thinking, geez, you know, we can't we can't crack our jokes anymore, you know. So you you just find yourself going, it's too much hard work. So so I can understand why it's taking time to change, but I think if we get people to commit to it and you put it down in black and white. Then I think you then then you then you're accountable for it. Then you're going to make a change, right? Or if you said if you installed the race code, right? And if the race code said you as a PLC, unless you can demonstrate you you followed the race code in that, that your bonuses will be impacted. I guarantee they'll pick up and raise their game and and, and have an impact. And to me, unless we start exposing people and exposing companies, but giving them solutions to do it which we are able to do now, then I don't think there's as many excuses as before. I've got 10 years board experience, right? 10 years board experience, six years as a CEO. And I've never, I was never approached by one search company for a non-exec role. So what does that tell you, right? There's not many CEOs of a PLC that was of colour in the UK. I must be one of five at the time, if that. So to me, it's saying, do you know what? It's not going to change unless it hits a company's pockets or if, a, if clients say to companies, unless you can demonstrate what you're doing in this area, then nothing will happen. We had the same conversation with, with, the, with both parties, Tories and Conservative Party, about the race code, right? How do we make it? And they're like, well, yeah, great idea. But one of them said, and I won't say which government, say, well, um, we're, we're basically saying we're long in, in race initiatives. We don't need any more. We've done, you know, we've, we've covered that enough. And we're saying, no, but you haven't done anything to to make a change. What are you going to do that's going to practically make a change to a business as opposed to here's another report showing the inequality. Here's another report. Boris did it recently. Another report came out recently saying, oh, it's no institutional racism in the workplace. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you need another report? You really believe that? And then they're going to do another report to, to, to question that last report. We don't need any more reports, right? We need practical solutions and i think people companies need to be held accountable and if they're held accountable and it affects their pockets then they're going to make a change until that time happens 
we're just going to see a lot of noise going on and very little happening. The definition of insanity to keep doing the same thing and expect a different result, right? Do something differently, even if it's a small step, one small step followed by another small step. Eventually it will all add up. But if you keep doing the same thing, nothing's going to change. Gary, I've got one last question for you. If the tables were turned and you were the host today and you had your pick of anyone that you could get to talk about progression, who would be your dream guest to in, to interview for their experiences and insights into progressing lives everywhere? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a curveball you've just hit me with. Do, 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 you know, do you know who I've listened to recently and I, I found really inspiring? I found Michelle Obama really inspiring in that if I look at her career as a lawyer and how she was successful in her own right, but even, and I know everyone says, oh, she was the first lady, right? But if I think about even as a, as a first lady, the things she was trying to do around child poverty and, and, you know, making sure what you eat as much as anything. And I think that stimulates your brain as well. If I think about the things that she's quite strong about, she's got strong views about, you know, how you've got to help each other, how you've got to make sure that you're, you know, people are doing things consciously about their body and what they're putting in their body. And I find, you know, every time she talks, I find her really inspiring. I think she really sets the scene. And she's she's someone that you, you can relate to as well, because although despite all the success and what they've achieved, she still seems pretty grounded. So I, I, I find her pretty inspiring. Um, so, yeah, someone like her. I could, do you know what? I couldn't agree more. That would be 100%. And apparently my dog agrees. That would be my, my, my dream best too. We'll, we'll finish there in absolute agreement. Gary, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating to listen to you, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. I'm sorry if I, I know I'll go on a bit and sometimes I go off at a tangent. As you know, right, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. I'm not a pessimist, right? I think things will come good. I do think the younger generations will definitely change things. But I think the power is still at the top. And unless the people who are in power are exposed and are educated to change, then it will take even longer. So I think we just need to start keeping that pressure. I think young people are doing that at the moment. People that are in that privileged position, start thinking about what impact you can have. And the more we start getting people aware of what the challenges are, I think then the quicker we can make a change. And hopefully in five years, 10 years time, we're going to see significant changes. Um, But we've not seen that much in 20 years, unfortunately. Let's hope we can accelerate with the younger generation, as you say. I certainly share your optimism there. Thank you. I think there will be the generation that will do it. Our kids will be the ones that, that move things forward. So. I certainly I hope so. so. I but, uh, so. Don't apologise for the passion. <laughs> Thank you very no much. No worries. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Moria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.